Tonight's Bible reading comes from Genesis, and our first one is from Genesis chapter 42. We're going to be reading verses 1 to 5. When Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you just keep looking at each other? He continued, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us, so that we may live, we may live and not die. Then ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain from Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with the others, because he was afraid that harm might come to him. So Israel's sons were among those who went to buy grain, for there was famine in the land of Canaan also. Now we're going to turn to chapter 44, starting at verse 1, and we're going to read to chapter 45, verse 9. Now Joseph gave these instructions to the steward of his house. Fill the men's sacks with as much food as they can carry, and put each man's silver in the mouth of his sack. Then put my cup, the silver one, in the mouth of the youngest one's sack, along with the silver for his grain. And he did as Joseph said. As morning dawned, the men were sent on their way with their donkeys. They had not gone far from the city when Joseph said to his steward, Go after those men at once. And when you catch up with them, say to them, Why have you repaid good with evil? Isn't this the cup my master drinks from and also uses for divination? This is a wicked thing you have done. When he caught up with them, he repeated these words to them. But they said to him, Why does my Lord say such things? Far be it from your servants to do anything like that. We even brought back to you from the land of Canaan the silver we found inside the mouths of our sacks. So why would we steal silver or gold from your master's house? If any of your servants is found to have it, he will die, and the rest of us will become my lord's slaves. Very well then, he said, let it be as you say. Whoever is found to have it will become my slave. The rest of you will be free from blame. Each of them quickly lowered his sack to the ground and opened it. Then the steward proceeded to search, beginning with the oldest and ending with the youngest and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. At this, they tore their clothes. Then they all loaded their donkeys and returned to the city. Joseph was still in the house when Judah and his brothers came in, and they threw themselves to the ground before him. Joseph said to them, what is this you have done? Don't you know that a man like me can find things out by divination? What can we say to my Lord? Judah replied. What can we say? How can we prove our innocence? God has uncovered your servant's guilt. We are now my Lord's slaves, we ourselves and the one who was found to have the cup. But Joseph said, far be it from me to do such a thing. Only the man who was found to have the cup will become my slave. The rest of you, go back to your father in peace. Then Judah went up to him and said, pardon your servant, my Lord. Let me speak a word to my Lord. Do not be angry with your servant, though you are equal to Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servants, do you have a father or a brother? And we answered, we have an aged father, and there is a young son born to him in his old age. His brother is dead, and he is the only one of his mother's sons left, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, bring him down to me so I can see him for myself. And we said to my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father. If he leaves him, his father will die. But you told your servants, Unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you will not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him what my Lord had said. Then our father said, 
Go back and buy a little more food. But we said, we cannot go down. Only if our youngest brother is with us will we go. We cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. One of them went away from me, and I said, he has surely been torn to pieces, and I have not seen him since. If you take this one from me too, and harm comes to him, you will bring my grey head down to the grave in misery. So now, if the boy is not with us when I go back to your servant, my father, and if my father, whose life is closely bound up with the boy's life, sees that the boy isn't there, he will die. Your servants will bring the grey head of our father down to the grave in sorrow. Your servant guaranteed the boy's safety to my father. I said, if I do not bring him back to you, I will bear the blame before you, my father, all my life. Now then, please let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy, and let the boy return with his brothers. How can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? No, do not let me see the misery that would come on my father. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants, and he cried out, Have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him, and Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him, because they were terrified at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, Come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now, do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here, because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now there has been famine in the land, and for the next five years there will be no ploughing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then, it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household and ruler of all Egypt. Now hurry back to my father and say to him, this is what your son Joseph says. God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, don't delay. Thanks for reading, Laura. Uh, Keep your Bibles open there, friends. We're going to be covering Genesis 42 through to 45 tonight, and let's pray for God's help. Heavenly Father, as we sit under your word tonight, we pray that you would convict and change us, that you would challenge and transform us. We pray that you would work powerfully through your word to make us more like your son. In his name we pray. Amen. Uh, Well, friends, one of my favorite things about being a Christian is the joy of witnessing the transforming power of the gospel of grace. Uh, There's nothing quite like watching someone come to trust in Jesus for the first time, to see their life, their priorities, their goals and ambitions, all that they are and all that they live for get transformed by the gospel of grace. And you know, there's nothing quite like seeing a person grow and mature as a follower of Jesus over a long period of years. Uh, When you can look back and think about how maybe the person that you knew maybe seven years ago 
never would have had the confidence to share Jesus with their friends, but now they do. Or to serve in that ministry, or to welcome that person to church. Maybe you can see how God has convicted someone of the reality of God's Word, helped them to take responsibility and to live a transformed life. There is great joy in seeing people transformed by the gospel of grace. At St. Stephen's, we say that we are a people who are committed to Christ as Lord, living for, uh, transformed by His grace, living for His glory and sharing the good news of Jesus in all the world. And so you see, transformation is at the very heart of who we are. It's in our DNA. See, the reality of the Christian life is that God has graciously transformed us and He is graciously transforming us to be more like Jesus. Anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. Uh, one of the really funny caricatures of Christians is that they're the people who hate change. Uh, they're the ones who resist change most. But actually, what we see is that what lies at the heart of who we are is transformation. Our goal every time that we read God's Word, whether that be at home or at church, our goal is it would change us and make us more like Jesus. Transformation is at the very heart of who we are. But if you're here tonight and you're thinking, well, I really need some transformation. I really need to get my life together. I need to sort things out. If you're thinking, I need to clean myself up and then I'm going to come to Christ. Well, can I say to you, don't try and change yourself. Come to Christ and let Him change you. Be transformed by His grace. But friends, maybe you're here tonight and you're thinking, well, God did that transformation in my life many, many years ago, and that was in the past, and this is now, and I'm just kind of living my life. Well, if that's you, can I encourage you to keep your Bibles open tonight? Keep your Bibles open because as we look at this part of Genesis, we're going to see how Joseph's brothers were transformed by the God of sovereign grace. And we're going to see three signs of this transformation. We're going to see it in their conviction, in taking responsibility, and in their action. We're going to see that a person is radically transformed by the God of sovereign grace. Firstly, conviction. Uh, last time we covered Genesis 37 to 41, we saw that the trajectory of Joseph's life was pretty much like a roller coaster. Uh, he was loved by his father, but then sold into slavery by his brothers. But then he rose to the top in that house, but then he was put in prison. But then he rose to the top in that prison, but then the person who could set him free forgot him. Up and down, up and down, up and down. But finally... God gave Pharaoh a dream and God gave Joseph the interpretation. He said there would be seven years abundance in the land and that would be followed by seven years of famine. And as we finish chapter 41, Joseph was made second in charge of Egypt and he was raised higher than ever before. We see that at the end of that chapter, Joseph got married and he had two kids. The story was kind of tied up in a neat little bow. We hear that the first child was named Manasseh, 
because God had caused him to forget all his troubles. And the second child, Ephraim, because God had made him fruitful in the land of his suffering. Friends, there are probably chapters in your life that you would much rather forget. Hard moments that you don't want to remember. And yet, in the providence of God, that roller coaster ride is a part of the sovereign Lord's plan to make you more like Jesus. Our unique griefs are the brush strokes with which God paints a masterpiece. That's what we saw last time in Genesis. But now as we start chapter 42, the camera actually pans away from Joseph and it goes back to Jacob and his sons in the land of Canaan. Uh, You might remember that when we looked at chapter 37, I wanted to highlight for us this verse right at the start. It told us that this is the account of Jacob's family line. So in other words, this story, it's not all about Joseph. It's about Jacob's sons. And in fact, the only reason it's about Jacob's sons is because Jacob was born of Isaac, Isaac of Abraham. And to Abraham came those promises that, he would, that God would bless his offspring and that through his offspring, all nations would be blessed. And so we come now to chapter 42 and we see that despite the fact that things are going really well for Joseph, things aren't going well for Jacob's sons. And because of that, the promise that God made to Abraham is looking like it's at risk. We read in chapter 42 that famine had struck the land of Canaan. Jacob and his family are just about out of food, and so he sends his sons to Egypt to go and buy grain. All his sons, except for Benjamin, of course, because Jacob is still a rotten father. Remember Jacob, the one who loved Rachel more than Leah? Remember how Jacob loved Joseph more than all his other brothers and he gave him this ornate robe as a way to let all the other brothers know about it? Well, now Benjamin was Jacob's favorite son and his brothers knew it. But they go to Egypt to get grain anyway. And even though Jacob hasn't changed... Joseph has actually changed a lot. Uh, now he's going by the name Zaphanath Paneah. He's dressing like an Egyptian, talking like an Egyptian, even walking like an Egyptian. His brothers were rugged, bearded shepherds, and he was probably clean-shaven and wearing makeup. And so it's no surprise that when his brothers came and stand before him, he recognizes them, but they don't recognize him. And as his brothers bow to the ground, Joseph remembers those dreams that God gave him and those memories start flooding back in. What do you think you would do if you were in Joseph's position? What would you do if the very people who stripped you naked, threw you in a hole, laughed over the top of you and then sold you into slavery came back to you, and this time the power was in your hands. 
you might wonder why Joseph acts the way that he does. Why not do a great big reveal at this point? Why not take off the mask, so to speak, and say, hey guys, guess what? It's me, Joseph, the one you sold into slavery. So, bump, bump, I'm not giving you any food. Well, I think it's because of all that's happened to Joseph in the last few chapters. All throughout his slavery and imprisonment, God was gracious to him. And so as someone who has experienced God's grace, he extends that grace to others. Of course, Joseph could just reveal himself and just forgive them, right? Wouldn't that shorten the story a fair bit? I'd just say, hey, by the way, I'm Joseph, the one you sold into slavery, but that was 20 years ago, so don't worry about it. I'm rich, come enjoy some food. Well, Joseph isn't going to do that because despite the fact that he's changed a lot over the last 20 years, he has no idea if his brothers who are standing before him have changed. Those brothers who sold him into slavery and had no regard for their father's welfare, he wants to know if they are changed, if they will care for Jacob and his brother Benjamin. And so he sets a test. At first, He takes them all into custody and he asks them to send one of their number to go back and to bring Benjamin with them. But after three days, Joseph decides on a different test, a a test which is similar to what they did to him all those years ago. This time, Simeon is taken into custody while the rest of the brothers can go free. If they want to validate their story and free their brother, they must bring Benjamin back. In other words, he's giving them another chance to abandon one brother into slavery, just as they did to him all those years ago. And at this, the brothers confess their guilt. They say, surely we are being punished because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life, but we would not listen. That's why this distress has come on us. Unwittingly, they've just confessed their guilt to the very man that they sinned against. And this is the first sign of change in the brothers. But it's not quite enough for Joseph to reveal himself just yet. I mean, after all, there's a great difference between remorse and repentance. Feeling guilty is not the same thing as being changed. In fact, in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, the Apostle Paul talks about how his first letter caused them great grief and sorrow. He says, Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while, yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. See, there's a great difference between feeling bad for what you've done and actually turning away from it trusting in Jesus and finding salvation in Him. 
just this week, as I was writing that line in the sermon, I decided to take a break and go for a walk. And I just so happened to bump into someone that I haven't seen in about 10 years. Uh, The last time I saw them, they were happily married and serving in ministry. But now because of something that they've done, and I don't know what, that's no longer true. They've destroyed both their marriage and their ministry. And at first I was a bit shocked. I didn't know what to say. But then I was almost led to tears. I was almost led to tears because I know that they would be doing one of a few things. Right now they might be protesting their innocence. They might be shifting the blame or downplaying what they've done. They might not feel any guilt whatsoever. And that would be a terrible place for them to be. But they could also be wracked in guilt, drowning in despair, depression and emptiness because their life has been turned upside down by what they did. I was almost drawn to tears because I hope that they are doing neither of those things. I hope that they are filled with a godly sorrow, a godly sorrow which brings repentance, which leads to salvation, and which frees them from fear and guilt. A genuine turning from whatever they've done and clinging to Christ. Friends, that's my heart for all of us. That when we sin, we wouldn't protest our innocence or downplay or minimize or just ignore it, nor that we would drown in despair and guilt, that we wouldn't isolate ourselves from Christians or distance ourselves from Christ. No, my prayer is that we would be people who have godly sorrow and inward conviction that leads to repentance, salvation, transformation, and life. The first sign of the brothers' transformation is their conviction. But come now to chapter 43, where we see the second sign of their transformation, responsibility. Because now that Joseph has set this test, there's actually one great big problem. Jacob is still a rotten father. See, when he hears that Simeon is in prison and that Benjamin must go down with his brothers to Egypt if he wants to see Simeon again, Jacob says, well, Simeon's as good as dead. There's no way that Jacob would risk losing Benjamin, even if it meant losing Simeon. In fact, at the end of the last chapter, Reuben tried this really weird thing to calm his father's fears. He said, hey, Dad, um, I'll take care of Benjamin as we go down to Egypt. And if I don't, you can kill, my two grand- you can kill your two grandsons to punish me. Somehow, that doesn't convince Jacob that Reuben's the right person to give the responsibility to care for Jacob. Judah, however, steps up and takes the mark in chapter 43, verse 8. He says, Send the boy along with me, and we will go at once, so that we and you and our children may live and not die. I myself will guarantee his safety. You can hold me personally responsible for him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, I will bear the blame before you all my life. 
It's very easy to miss this, but you might remember that Judah was the one who selfishly sold Joseph into slavery. And now he selflessly takes the responsibility for Benjamin. And so Judah and his brothers go down to Egypt a second time, and Joseph begins treating them rather unusually. He welcomes them over to his place for a meal. Uh, Now, there must have been thousands of people pouring into Egypt every single day to get food, but for some reason, this particular official wanted to take time with Jacob's sons and invites them over for a meal. They fear the worst. They think, well, he's obviously got plans to imprison us. And so once again, they confess their guilt. They say, look, we don't know how the silver got back in our bags, but here's the silver we gave you, and here's some more gifts. And the servant tells them not to worry. And then Joseph comes, and they sit at a table in order from oldest to youngest. And they all receive a generous portion. But he gives Benjamin a portion five times that of his brother's. Once again, this is another test. Joseph wants to know if his brothers, who were once controlled by anger and jealousy, will treat Benjamin the same way when he is shown favor. But there's one more stage to this elaborate test, and so Joseph wants to see transformation in action. Uh, Come now to chapter 44, Joseph tells the steward of his house to fill his brother's sacks with grain and put his silver cup at the top of Benjamin's sack. And as the brothers go home, the steward pursues them and accuses them of stealing his master's cup. And now the brothers know that they haven't stolen his cup, but still, they make a fairly rash promise in verse 9, don't they? If anyone is found to have the cup, he will die and we will all become your slaves. And so in verse 10, the steward lessens the charge. He says, only the one who is found to have the cup will become a slave. The rest of you can go free. Once again, the brothers have a chance to sacrifice one brother and to selflessly run off. But when the cup is found in Benjamin's bag, they all tear their clothes and go back to Egypt. There's great irony in that. Remember in Genesis 37, they tore Joseph's clothes off him and sent him into Egypt. And now, when their brother is found to be in the wrong, they tear their clothes and go back with him. They won't let any harm come to their father's favorite son. Imagine you were one of the brothers at this point. What do you think you'd do? Uh, Maybe you would plead your innocence. Maybe you'd say, look, I had no idea that the cup was there. Maybe you'd say, look, this is just one big confusing mix-up. Notice what Judah does in verse 16. He says, what can we say? How can we prove our innocence? God has uncovered your servant's guilt. We are now my Lord's slaves. We ourselves and the one who was found to have the cup. See, even though he knows that he didn't do this, he knows that at the end of the day, he's still guilty. And so he knows that he deserves this punishment. 
But Joseph says, well, far be it from me to do such a thing. Only the man who was found to have the cup will become my slave. The rest of you go back to your father in peace. This is one more test. One more final opportunity for Judah to selfishly sacrifice his brother and to run home free. But as we see, Judah is a changed man. Judah explains to him that Benjamin is his father's favorite son and that if anything were to happen to Benjamin, Jacob would die of grief. Now, that certainly didn't stop Judah the last time. In fact, that's what incentivized him to sell Joseph into slavery. But this time, Judah explains that he has taken responsibility for Benjamin's life. And so Judah proposes a substitute. Let me remain here as your slave and let Benjamin go free. What a change in character that is. The one who once brought grief on his father by selling his brother into slavery now becomes a slave so that his father might be spared grief. The one who selfishly sold his brother into slavery now offers himself so that Benjamin could go free. You might remember that this whole time I've been telling you that Joseph is not the main character of the story. This is not the account of Joseph. This is the account of Jacob's family, of all of his sons. And despite the fact that Jacob has featured majorly in the narrative for the past few chapters, one brother has started to step into the spotlight in the last few acts. It's Judah. In fact, as you continue in the rest of the Bible, you would know that Judah's family line would continue to be important because actually from Judah would not just come King David, but from Judah's descendants would come Jesus, the Christ. And the part that Judah plays in Genesis is just a shadow of the part that Jesus plays on the cross. Judah gave his life as a ransom for Benjamin, but Jesus gave his life as a ransom for many. Judah was able to set one brother free through his sacrifice, but Jesus has done that for many. And because of this, because of this, brothers and sisters, we have the joy of witnessing the great transforming power of the gospel of grace. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. Tonight we have seen the great transformation of Judah, how he was transformed by God's grace, how he went from being a selfish sinner to a sacrificial substitute. But the part that Judah plays is but a shadow of the beautiful performance that Jesus has done. 
the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so, brothers and sisters, because of God's mercy, let us offer him our lives as living sacrifices in worship to him. Let us be a people transformed by his grace through his word. Let's be a people committed to Christ, transformed by his grace, living for his glory and sharing the good news of Jesus in all the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for that great substitute that Jesus has done in our place. We thank you that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so in view of your mercy, help us to live lives of worship and honour to you. Please continue to transform us by your word and your spirit, that we would live lives to your honour and glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.